Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. If you like to attract birds to your open spaces, you probably have a bird feeder and perhaps a water fountain or bowl. That's a good start, but different birds have different needs. And in today's program, we'll learn about attracting a wide variety of birds and other animals by providing the right food, water, and shelter. As you may know, food, water, and shelter are the ingredients for creating a wildscape. Wildscapes allow us humans to enjoy nature close to home, while protecting animals, birds, and other wild creatures from being displaced. We'll hear from Kelly Simon, who is an urban wildlife biologist. She's written the book on wildscapes and knows all about ways to get wild animals and birds to be part of your backyard. In our last program, we talked about the steps to take in creating a wildscape for those who have a bit or a lot of land. I asked Kelly Simo whether apartment or urban dwellers can create wildscapes. One of the coolest things I have ever witnessed was going to downtown Houston where there is not any permeable ground anywhere. It's all hardscape. Um, and going to the roof of a hospital in downtown Houston where they had installed a rooftop garden. And on that rooftop garden, surrounded by an, just an ocean of concrete, there were butterflies. There were bees, there were beetles, there were ants, there were, yeah. there were all kinds of wonderful species. And every once in a while you get a bird that would come along and prey on some of those species. <laughs> and also some of the rooftop garden um, fruits and berries and um, seeds and things like that too. So um, you can create that, I, I say all that to say this, you can create habitat anywhere. Mm. It's not gonna be the same habitat anywhere. Um, and so it's, it's important to remember that we should create habitat that's appropriate. So you're not gonna put, um, well, like a, like a hummingbird garden on the, on a, on the 110th floor. Because not, not because they can't fly that high, but because they shouldn't fly that high in a city, mm -hmm. right? They, they'll be migrating at that point and um, you, you're not gonna provide a whole lot of stopover area. But, uh, but what you can do is provide grasses that absorb the water, grasses that will absorb some of the heat and convert it into um, food um, and oxygen. You can and create oxygen. You can also provide habitat for butterflies and for beetles and for dragonflies and yeah. for things like that. So it's really va very valuable, not just on the rooftops, but on patios as well. You never know when you're going to provide some ha some stopover habitat for migrating uh, wildlife. It may not, they not, may not be uh, breeding wildlife on your on your back porch, but they they certainly can utilize those resources. And you you could be a critical connection between two habitats. You can find uh, you can find some reproductive species. You might find that you attract a barn swallow, uh, which is a bird that can build a house, uh, build its nest on the side of almost anything. <laughs> um, you might find that you attract a garden spider, which is a really good beneficial predator um, and a really big spider too so they're fun to look at. Um, and I, um, a lot of people's fears of spiders sometimes can be uh, mitigated if they have access, daily access, to a non-dangerous friendly spider. And a garden spider is one of those. If you've ever read Charlotte's Web, she right. was <laughs> modeled after a garden spider. 
So um, it's it just think of her as Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, so anyway, you yeah, you can have habitat in almost area, almost any area. So you mentioned birds. Um, mm -hmm. What if the the main thing you want to do in your wildscape is to attract birds? Mm -hmm. um, what specific things would you uh, want to include in your plan? Yeah, well, it's good to note that there are different kinds of birds. So we have hummingbirds, we have songbirds, we have uh, wrens, we have um, mockingbirds, we have sparrows, but we also have herons and egrets. We also have birds of prey. So all those different types, of, we have woodpeckers too. We have all different types of birds and they all require a little bit different kind of habitats. So once you understand kind of the, the kinds of birds that you'd like to attract or provide habitat for, then you look for the specific requirements of each of those um, species. So for example, if you wanted to put out a bird feeder, that's wonderful, but you wanna make sure that you're putting out the type of bird feeder that is appropriate for the animal. So I mean, obviously, if you're putting out hummingbird food, you want it to be sugar water instead of seeds. Um, but one thing to be careful of is that we're not feeding the generalist species that are doing pretty well anyway, that don't really need our help in urbanized areas. So we wanna be sure that we're not just feeding house sparrows, for example, or blue jays. House sparrows are exotic invasive species. They overtake habitat from our native species and probably are not something that we wanna artificially support. Um, but we can provide food that's a little bit more appropriate for things like chickadees and titmice and cardinals that are a little bit more uh, appropriate for urbanized areas and not those generalist species that'll take over habitat. Mm -hmm. So you might want to consider putting out, for example, black whale sunflower seed uh, for feeders instead of the wild bird seed mix that you'll find in most big box stores that have a lot of millet in it. Um, that millet is great for sparrows and also brown-headed cowbirds, but it's not good for chickadees and tent mice. Yeah. Usually what they will do is they'll kick out the stuff that they don't like, it'll fall to the ground as waste, um, and then they'll eat those black oil sunflower seeds that are in there. And oftentimes what happens then are in the nighttime, rodents will come out and yeah. eat those. And or then the you squirrels. have well, and then you have this whole ecosystem that's using the bird feeder that are not birds. So you'll have um, small mammals, you'll have um, including squirrels, but also they, they don't like the millet so much, but they like the corn. Mm -hmm. um, the the possums will come out as well, and then you'll have, start getting predators. So you'll also see some rat snakes and things like that coming around, or, or maybe a cooper's hawk. What we'd really like to do is provide a good, well-balanced habitat. So we want to include those native species that produce seeds and fruits and berries that are appropriate for bird species as well. Um, when you're attracting birds, you, you might also want to put out a birdhouse. Um, so birdhouses are great, but sometimes they're made more for people than they are for wildlife. So check them out and make sure if they've got like a, a license plate roof or they're made out of a boot, you know, those are adorable, but they're great to keep inside, um, not so much for outside. They're not great for birds. In my book, as well as many other publications, you can find specifications for the nest hole size, uh, the depth of the thing, how often you want to clean it out. Um, how, what kind of materials you make it out of. You want to make sure to make it out of natural materials. And, and also where you put it, right? And that also where important. you put it, you bet. Yeah. And also maybe some, some tips on predator, um, on keeping predators out. So we have not only snakes and raccoons, which are pretty common, rat snakes and raccoons, but also feral house or house cats, any kind of house cat. Um, they do a lot of predation of, of um, urban nests, nesting areas.
But really what we'd like to do, any place that we have a nest box, we would really rather have a standing dead tree or a dying tree that has cavities in it or holes in it. And those cavities and holes are really fantastic and the natural nesting resource for most of our bird species. But sometimes in urban areas, we worry about whether about those causing damage, structural damage, or or maybe even injuring somebody, and that's perfectly natural and yeah. a worthy consideration. One thing that people can do if they want to keep that standing dead tree but avoid some of those risks is to trim off all the horizontal limbs off of that tree, and top the tree so that you know it's it doesn't have a whole lot of dead area that will come that will come crashing down, but maybe about 15, maybe 20 feet worth of standing standing uh, trunk um, and that will reduce the the light the likelihood of any injury or structural damage by a, a great deal a great a large factor um, but will also provide excellent resources for nesting birds birds typically have a pretty specific height at which they like to nest and it's related to the types of structures of plants that they'll find in those areas. So you won't get, for example, a dick cecil, which is a grassland, a ground nesting bird. You won't ever get it nesting up in a tree. Mm-hmm. And you will like, uh, likewise never get a vireo that nests high up in a tree. You will, you'll never get it down low. But um, things that are um, things that like to nest in cavities, they'll nest in a tree cavity whether it has horizontal branches on it or not. So you can trim it up and make it um, safe to be around, uh, but also have that. If you want to use those branches, they can be used for a variety of purposes. One could be for sheltering habitat, that is for um, areas uh, areas for birds to flit to to escape danger while they're traveling among different habitats. How about water? Water is critical for all wildlife in Central Texas. It needs to be fresh and clean and accessible as well. So um, remember that most of the birds that that you're going to attract in an urban habitat are going to have very short legs and they're not going to swim very well. So you want to make sure they have a a sloped, gently sloped area in which they can get in and out of the, the water resource. And if you can't provide that, say you've got a pond that has straight sides on it, you might want to consider putting in some sort of structure like a log or piles of rocks or something that the wildlife can get into and out of. Because the last thing that you want to do is put out habitat that you want to attract animals to and then find that they've drowned in the night after accessing it. So um, be sure to put that escape route uh, available to wildlife. Um, So... So we've covered food and we've covered water. We also want to cover a little bit of shelter. So shelter can be for adults, for young, uh, sheltering from weather, from predators. It can be done in a variety of ways. Uh, Nest boxes really are for nesting, they're for reproduction. But they can also be used a little bit for roosting in the wintertime. So you might consider leaving them up and open in the wintertime. If you have a mind to go check after a cold snap, you might find a whole bunch of birds huddled up in uh, in a nest box. Um, but you can also provide it with um, brushy vegetation, so providing a shrub area that's maybe dense, more, a little bit more dense. Um, providing grasses, uh, standing grasses like little blue stem or Lindheimer muley, some of the decorative grasses. Reconsider um, cutting them. Some people like to cut them in the wintertime, yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. But I would wait until March or so to do that because they're extensively, or until things start greening up, mm-hmm. actually. That could be middle of February. Yeah. Um, because a lot of wildlife use that, not only the structure itself, 
you know, nesting or uh, roosting down in the center of the grasses or using it as a windbreak. But also um, native bees will use them and other insects will use them as well. They'll oftentimes cut holes in the stems, the dead stems, and they'll hibernate um, right. inside. Yeah. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm talking to Kelly Simo, an urban wildlife biologist, about creating inviting outdoor spaces for wildlife, including birds. We'll take a quick break and be back shortly. We're back now. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, here today with urban wildlife biologist Kelly Simo. We're learning about creating wildscapes, outdoor areas that attract wildlife, that give them a place to eat, drink, but also a place to feel safe, a place to shelter. Here's Kelly. You can also provide shelter um, as falling logs. Um, logs that are rotting in place. Mm-hmm. Um, you, that can be done artfully and decoratively, uh, but frogs and salamanders and insects really like that. And those are good. Uh, well, the insects are great for the frogs and salamanders, and it's all good for birds if we were talking about birds right. earlier. Right. They require um, insects, especially in the summertime when they're breeding. They're, uh, a lot of birds are very heavily dependent on insects in the summertime. And so, uh, speaking of insects, mm-hmm. um, are there uh, are, are there ways in which we can kind of increase the insect population? Yeah, as food for the birds, but at the same time keep you know keep the pests away. Right. So we like to think of insects oh, and any wildlife species as kind of in this dance, you know, kind of a balance. Um, if we allow any one insect or any group of insects to dominate an area, they bec- can become invasive. They can crowd out other species that are more beneficial. They'll crowd out the dancers, right, in the, in the balance, mm-hmm. in the dance. And so you, we want to make sure that we provide a well-balanced, healthy habitat that is healthy for all wildlife and all insects to allow them to sort themselves out. Because it's really hard for for um, us to control populations. It's yeah. very labor intensive for us yeah. to control populations, and sometimes we don't get it right. Uh, we don't get the the balance right of how many we should take out and which ones we should take out. And so um, it's really best to let nature sort that out. But that doesn't mean uh, letting go, because in an urbanized area we haven't let nature sort anything out, right? So we can't just expect it to to be healthy just because we step away in the middle of a city. Um, So what we wanna do is we wanna make sure that we've got enough leaf litter and we've got an absence of broad scale um, pesticides. We've got fallen logs occasionally. We've got standing dead trees occasionally, not all over the place, but occasionally is good. Um, And also that that we, keep in control our desire to keep things very well, uh, very um, tightly trimmed, closely trimmed, um, so that we allow things like those native grasses, for example, to overwinter in place. Mm -hmm. And then we clean them up. We don't want it to just go um, 
completely rank, you know, which is yes. a subjective term, and, but right. we don't want it to, to just go rank because um, that's not natural either. In nature, what would happen is there would be a disturbance that would come through, maybe a wildfire that would come through, or a herd of buffalo or something would come through, yeah. a, dist- a flood, things would disturb it. But in urbanized areas, we have... Uh, on the one hand, constant disturbance, and on the other hand, no disturbance at all. <laughs> so we yeah. have to um, uh, help replicate nature um, in, in the ways that we can to create that healthy, ha- balanced habitat. One other set of critters, toads and frogs. Yeah. Now they can be beneficial. Can you talk about that and how we might create uh, areas for them? Absolutely. So um, sometimes I talk about, you mentioned beneficial, and I want to make sure I clarify a little bit because I use that word sometimes and, and sometimes I cringe when I use it too. Because, you know, there's no species that is either good or bad on its own, right? It's, it's a value judgment that we give it. Right. And it's usually based on um, whether or not a species is either economically useful to us or um, aesthetically useful to us. Or sometimes it has to do with whether it it helps us attain our goals. You know, if it helps um, eat other insects that right. we're afraid of, right. and also not dangerous to us, right? Yeah. So yeah. those things kind of combine to, to be what we call beneficial. Right. But it's important to note that wildlife are neither beneficial nor harmful in and of themselves. That's they are point. they are the right. parts of nature that they play, and uh, they are they're generally vital in parts of that nature. But what we want to do, and, and that shorthand that we biologists and, and nature lovers use when we say beneficial insects, what we're really trying to say is we want to keep things in balance. We want don't want ever any one thing to get um, a stronghold and to overtake. Frogs and toads are amphibians, and that means that they require water for part of their life cycle. So of course, any habitat that hopes to include amphibians Um, frogs and toads, salamanders as well, has to have some sort of water in it. It has to be accessible as well. So those those things that we talked about earlier with making sure it has a shallow slope, for example, that's really important to maintain in a a frog or amphibian habitat. Other things that frogs and toads require are um, insects. (laughs) You know, they like to eat insects, most of them. So they're they're gonna be able to they're going to need to be in a habitat that doesn't have a wide use of pesticides. So with frogs and toads, we also want to have some sort of areas for insects to survive. And so they need to have some leaf litter. We call that detritus. Um, it provides rich organic matter that returns to the soil. So it's good for the garden. And it's also good for insects as well and other invertebrates. So we want to make sure that when we are maintaining our, our fall gardens and we're raking up our leaves, we want to make sure to leave some of that in place so that it has a chance to break down, create nutrients for the soil, and also be a place for insects to live. Right. Same thing with fallen logs and, and, and limbs and things like that. So you, you don't want it to, um, to accumulate too much. So again, it's a balance mm-hmm. because in nature you'd get fire that would come through and clear right. out some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you want to make sure that you have a little bit available all the time. So fallen logs, some branches, some leaves, just not a whole lot in any one time. One, just one other thought occurred to me is, is a big problem in, 
where where I live, there are herds of deer wandering <laughs> yeah. around, yeah. and a lot of people will feed them to encourage them, which you know creates bigger herds of deer. So uh, white-tailed deer are a native component of our ecosystem. They're a natural component of our eco- ecosystem. Unfortunately, their numbers have been inflated because they really like living in the areas that we've provided. Um, Also, unfortunately, um, the habitats that we provide, while they they like the structure of the habitat, the the components of food for that habitat are not not real good. Mm -hmm. So people see a large number of malnourished deer. It's only natural to see a deer that's not fed very well, that's, that's not surviving very well on the land, and want to feed it. It's absolutely natural, and it's kind. Unfortunately, um, the, the urge to then feed it corn is not kind. And the problem is that the corn doesn't provide the nutrients that the wildlife, that the deer need. Oh, really? Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, and even in, in wintertime, deer are funny things. They require, they, they can eat deer corn sometimes, but not all the time. Mm-hmm. So in the wintertime, their gut fauna, just like we have gut fauna, right, in Flora, um, their gut fauna do not allow them to digest the corn very well. So especially up north, when it gets even colder, you will see, you will find deer that have a gut full of corn that have starved to death. It's a terrible problem up north especially, but also here as well. Here, they can digest it for a longer period of time throughout the year, but it's like feeding a child candy. You know, they really like it, and they get a lot of carbohydrates from it and a lot of good sugar from it, but they don't get a whole lot of nutrition from it. And so they will have the calories to reproduce, but not the nutrition. So what they will do frequently is they'll, they'll, um, pro- they will reproduce and sometimes even produce twins because they have so much calories in their system. Unfortunately, the land can't support that number of deer. They won't be able to survive on the land, and they will always appear hungry because they are hungry. So the kindest thing that we can do, although it's it's difficult to do, is to not provide corn or even protein pellets because again it's not complete nutrition it's not it's not the nutrition that's available on the land that can sustain them for their lifetime not just when you're able to feed them what they need is plants right so what they need is habitat and what they need is um, they need predators because Mm -hmm. of course there are prey species without a predator Um, and so now only humans really are the predator um, aside from when they're very very young um, and also they need water. So if you would like to provide something that you can see them partaking in, because that's a lot of it. A lot of it is rewarding ourselves for you know, by seeing them enjoy and benefit from the thing that we provide. So you can provide water on the landscape, see them enjoy that, and know that you're providing something very good, but that does not artificially inflate the calories yeah. available. Um, and lastly, I'd love for you to talk a little uh, more about your book, mm-hmm. uh, Texas Wildscapes Gardening. Gardening for Wildlife, for wildlife. Yeah. yeah. So Texas Wildscapes Gardening for Wildlife. It's a Texas A&M Field Guides edition. Um, and it's a book that was first produced in 1999 that's undergone a couple of revisions since then. It was a collaborative effort through uh, myself and my coworkers where we put together the information that we had all been given 
and, and outreach and talks and interviews and videos and things like that. But we put it all together in one place, and that's the Texas Wildscapes book. It's got not only the plants that um, are good for Texas, there are a couple of books out there that, that do that very well, but also how to put it together for a, a wildlife-friendly garden. Um, so we take a look at how to provide food, water, shelter for birds, for small mammals, for reptiles and amphibians, for butterflies, for other invertebrates. We all deserve t uh, time and space to enjoy nature, and we hope everybody will get outside. The Texas Wildscapes Gardening for Wildlife book contains a lot of detailed information, which you'll find useful in planning your wildscape. For example, there's a list of butterfly species that tells which plants the butterfly's larva needs and which plants the adult butterfly of each species prefer. Another section lists plants that hummingbirds really like. There's information with exact specifications for building nest boxes for various bird species. If you need plants for shady areas or for boggy areas, there are suggestions for both. There's also a list of deer-resistant plants that many people will find essential. There are garden designs that you can use for inspiration as you plan your wildscape. A very important part of the book details plants, including bushes, trees, and grasses that are considered invasive and that are not native. Many of these are popular in home landscapes, but you should know that they can overtake native plant species. And because they are not native, they do not provide shelter or food for our native wildlife. Grasses are a big part of most landscapes, but in a wildscape, native grasses that are allowed to grow without being mowed for the most part are the best. Manicured lawns are generally dead zones as far as wildlife are concerned, so consider replacing them with a wildflower meadow. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell your friends about Mothering Earth and insist that they subscribe. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news.